0: Hey, welcome to the Dunker Punks podcast. Today we're talking about reconciliation, we're talking about capital punishment, we're talking about Christian advocacy and politics, but first we're going to sing it out. Let's go. I don't
1: wanna be a racist, don't wanna be a capitalist, don't wanna be a sexist, no. I don't wanna pass judgment, don't wanna hold grudges, don't wanna be hateful, I just wanna be. Countercultural, pacifistic, unconditional lover.
0: Kraus, looking forward to sharing this podcast with you all today. Uh, the audio is brought to us by one of our other hosts, Emma Eldred. Uh, he's interviewing Chrisanne Valancourt Murphy from the Catholic Mobilizing Network, which you'll we'll hear more about here in a minute. Definitely interested on getting your thoughts on today's podcast. Tweet us at DunkerPunksPod or hit us up on Snapchat or Facebook, also at DunkerPunksPod. So before we get started, I want to present a couple questions uh, for you to think about as you listen to the interview with Emma and Chris Sand. First one is, uh, what are your thoughts on the criminal justice system as it stands as a Christian and a Baptist who is integrated into modern society? Uh, They're going to get a little more into capital punishment since that's primarily what chris ann's work deals with but i think it's a good starting point to think about just like the the american criminal justice system generally is it a christian way of doing things and then the other question they'll get into a little later is should christians advocate for their beliefs in politics and if so how should they so think about that as you listen to this interview
2: Court Murphy, and I'm the managing director at Catholic Mobilizing Network in Washington, D.C. We've been around for about 10 years. We're coming upon our 10th anniversary. Um, Catholic Mobilizing Network is a national organization that proclaims the Church's pro-life teaching and prepares Catholics and people of faith for informed involvement in the public public debate and the death penalty and to promote restorative justice.
3: And so what does your um, organization's, like, day-to-day work on the death penalty focus on? What are you active on right now?
2: Well, we're constantly monitoring what's happening at, in the states. You know, the, the the federal government does have a death penalty as well as 31 other states across the country. Um, so there hasn't been a lot of activity, gratefully, meaning that they haven't executed anybody in about 10 years at the federal level, although there is a death row uh, contingent. But in it's primarily the states that are battling the day to day death penalty work around you know folks who are opposed trying to curb its its um, its reaches or to repeal the death penalty altogether. There are states that are very active right now. The Washington state out west has just um, it just finished its legislative session, for example for the past uh, two months they've been focusing on repealing the death penalty in Washington State. Um, that failed, unfortunately, on Friday, but that's been a two-month effort of state activists and advocates really uh, doing their best to to go to their legislatures and, and fight this fight. There's been some movement, pretty profound movement, um, with conservatives in Washington State that are also opposed to the death penalty, and there have been some changes in um leadership within the different committees so we thought this was a really good chance of moving but but no luck um although it was it was definitely a close um a close race Uh, another state that we're focusing on very closely right now is louisiana this month of march um, they are actually going to be looking at a bill uh, to repeal the death penalty louisiana is a heavily used user state in terms of the death penalty and sentencing and execution so Um, the fact that they're willing to pursue a repeal through their legislature, which starts in March and ends in June, um, is something that we're following very closely. So that's our legislative work. But the other side of our work is actually calls for clemency. So there's typically, you know, the last few years that there's been between 20 and 30 executions, actually, where they've, you know, successfully executed individuals in our country. And, Um, so we, when a person on death row receives the date of execution, we follow that very closely and we, uh, start what we call our mercy in action project that helps to point advocates who are opponents of the death penalty to do something, um, active to get involved. They call or write the board of paroles in that Mm -hmm. county, um, in that state or they contact the governor who has the authority to actually provide clemency at the last minute you know pretty much every state has that that option where the government has the governor has that um it has that uh within his or her power so our second part of our work is calls for clemency you know following those cases very closely and i, I guess the third thing i would say is that we're doing constant education around the country. You know, keeping folks informed about what the death penalty is, that it's not a deterrent to crime, that instead of uh, targeting the the worst of the worst in our society, it actually targets the most vulnerable, people who have mental illness, people who have, um, you know, experienced just terrible childhood trauma, or people who haven't had access to adequate um, legal representation. Um, disproportionately killing people who have, you know, people of color. So there's a lot of education that we do to just keep the awareness raised and keep people uh, uh, understanding what they can do to end the death penalty.
3: Yeah, I was, I was definitely hoping that you could uh, help us out with a little bit of that uh, education today as well, because I think this is an issue that um, certainly a lot of our listeners are aware of, but maybe they don't um, understand kind of the the movement uh, to end it. So one of my I guess questions is you you had mentioned that this isn't just a blue issue. This isn't a liberal issue. This is an issue that a lot of conservatives are working on too. And that's something that we're really interested in, in our podcast is connecting connecting with values that transcend political party. And so I, I I was definitely wondering if you could talk about why why would it be that um, someone who is a conservative or someone who is a progressive um, should be working together on on ending this issue?
2: Yeah, oh, definitely. Well, I guess a couple things I would say um, that seem to transcend uh, your typical conservative liberal divides. Um, the death penalty is really expensive. You know, practically speaking, it just it it goes on and on and on the appeals process, and understandably, I mean, it's it's a really it's a it's an action that is so definitive and taking someone's life, that there are measures along the way for appeal, which means that there's lots of lawyers involved. That means that there's lots of government resources and state resources involved in either keeping someone in prison and then, you know, the appeals process along the way. So it's more expensive to keep someone in prison um, who's on death row than it is, or to kill them than it is to keep them in prison for life, life without parole, because of all these appeals processes and things. So I think conservatives look at it that like, especially as there's states who are having budgetary constraints, um, conservatives or libertarians are saying, you know, forget it, it's just too expensive. The other thing I think where progressives and liberals can come together is that, you know, around the moral issue. It's um, there have been so many cases where people on death row have been proven to be innocent. And currently, since 1973, which is when the Supreme Court reinstated the death penalty, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, there have been 161 exonerations. That's the modern period of the death penalty. So for every nine executions that we see, typically about one person person on death row is found innocent so you can imagine that it's so definitive there's it's, it's so risky um and there are so many instances have found where people are innocent that i think liberals and conservatives alike are saying you know morally we can't stand behind this for our faith um who are we to make that to, to take a life even when great harm has been done especially when we have life without parole um, and the fact that so many mistakes have been made that are permanent.
3: Yeah, something that we, I, I think, talk a, a lot about in our podcasts and in other resources that we do with Dunker Punks is about justice. And we definitely, I think, sometimes when I'm talking about this issue with people, they'll say this is what's just, an eye for an eye. Um, but I think we, we read an alternative vision of justice in, in Scripture. And so I was hoping that you could talk a little bit about um, how does how does this issue connect with with um, God's teaching about what real justice looks like
2: well exactly I mean the, the criminal justice system it focuses all of its attention on the perpetrator of the crime and that's what that does is an amazing disservice to the people who've actually been victims of the crime I don't know if you've ever sat on a jury or had that kind of intimate experience with the legal system but the healing that people need, the wholeness that, that pe- the right relationships that people are seeking when there's been some grave harm, it doesn't. It's not helped by people getting killed because of it, or you know, watching someone be executed. Um, you know, God's justice has to do with restoration and redeeming all things and restoring right relationships, and we just don't. That doesn't come through. That doesn't happen through the death penalty. Um, so uh, because I'm Catholic we um, we look to our Pope, one of our you know our, our leaders within the church and Pope Francis like other popes before him uh, has said that the death penalty is an in, inhumane measure that it's contrary to the gospel and that it heavily wounds human dignity. Our reading of the gospel talks about life and the uh, that, that people are made in God's image that, that people, have bestowed upon them a god-given human dignity and so we see in the death penalty that the dignity of the human person is violated and it's you know there's there's a killing happening and so the justice that we see through Jesus modeling in scripture even through the old testament um it it's it's just it, it's absolutely contradicted with the death
3: penalty so i'm I'm really glad that you're touching on how um, faith informs the work that you're doing obviously you're the catholic mobilizing network so there's a um, very intimate um, and and close faith perspective to everything that you're doing so i was hoping that you could talk a little bit about that is there a particular verse from scripture or a story from the bible or just a value that you take um, from scripture that really uh, undergirds the work that you're doing.
2: You know, I would say um I don't know that there's a particular verse like thou shall not kill or uh, <laughs> you know from the 10 commandments or I would say it, it really has to do with um an understanding of scripture to uh, around the human dignity piece, you know, that we're we are made in God's image and that we have a God-given dignity and that God wants to restore um and we see that time and time again through scripture stories. Um, and so I think specifically when it comes to the healing and the wholeness that God has offered uh, to us through Jesus Christ, we see that as, as not happening in the death penalty. Um, and that no matter how you have suffered or even caused, suffered because of harm or caused harm yourself, you still have that God-given dignity, and that you still have—you should have—an opportunity to be restored. Um, that is—that is sort of the bottom line. That we can't sit here and judge and say, "Well, we're going to discard with you, and we're going to work with you, and and keep you." You know, like um, Scripture just doesn't read like that.
3: So, on the other on the other hand, um, something that we've discussed on our podcast in the past and grappled with is. On the one hand, we're people of faith who have a vision of uh, what a just society and world um, looks like. And on the other hand, we see examples of faith um, really playing a pretty toxic and corrosive role in our public discourse and in our politics. And so why would you say that it's appropriate or um, really even necessary for people of faith to participate in the political process and to participate in advocacy?
2: Um, I I think what is so critical for people of faith if you're serious about your faith you're active in your local church and you you know you read scripture and it's part of your life and you have an identity as being you know in our case a christian then to some degree you recognize that god's at work in the world you know if you're reading the the bible if you're looking at scripture through time through history god has been at work in the world and so the question for us is what is god's doing (laughs) what is happening around us where do we see glimpses of god and then how can we help to be agents of change you know i mean we look at stories like esther in the bible or nehemiah or moses all of these people of faith um they all they were all advocates in their time and god was at work but god didn't want to make changes without these people some ordinary, some you know had had more of a role in the government. Even you know Esther was placed in the palace, and um, you know it, so people at different stages and in different places have come to recognize that God is working through them. And so how do we how do we get on on board with God's plan? Um, I think with the toxicity that's involved in our political arena right now, I think. We have allowed to some degree, Christians have allowed um, the, the, the the renaming of terminology around scripture, around conservative, liberal, you know, we've allowed ourselves to be named and categorized, but the Holy Spirit can't be contained. You know, we have to see where God is restoring things in our midst, where God is redeeming things, where God is um, restoring relationships, where God is confronting injustice and um, and addressing brokenness, and we can, just out of our faith, become witnesses in those realms. Um, and, and certainly getting involved in policy advocacy is very important, because when you're looking at system change and the importance of long-term you know, changes for the common good, for human flourishing, often it takes place um, in the, the policies and the laws of our day.
3: So it sounds almost like it might come down to a question of the methods or the approach. Um, I certainly agree with you that to me it's not just uh, Christians have or people of faith more broadly have a role to play in advocacy, but really um, when I read scripture, I I almost feel like we have a obligation to participate in witnessing to God's vision uh, for what the world can look like. And so it, it might come down to the methods um and and the appropriate approach so how would you say that people of faith can participate in this process without their faith becoming politicized um, or without it becoming diminished or tarnished by their involvement
2: well i think some really important methods are um, if you want to get involved in social action if you want to get involved in advocacy or in in public policy advocacy um i think it's important that we step back first and we ask ourselves the question about what what method are we using are we do we see an injustice and decide that we're going to insert ourselves and you know kind of come up with a plan by ourselves because we know better and we're just going to tell other people listen I I read scripture and I think it's important we should do it this way (laughs) you know that's or should we kind of be in a posture of listening in a posture of collaboration and seeing who's mostly impacted by injustice, who's mostly affected by, you know, broken systems and should we learn from them what it is that they they think should be done? So are we doing advocacy with or are we kind of coming behind folks who are say most directly affected by some injustice? And are we supporting them and and encouraging them to tell their stories? And use their own testimony, you know, so I think we have to be very careful not to come in as saviors or know-it-alls. Um, I think if when we have a, a posture of listening and learning, of being faithful, uh, of being prayerful in our advocacy, then we kind of cut through some of the shaft when it comes to the political categorizing that, that happens in our day. Um, I think when people see the way that we do our work and some of the methods that we imply, they realize, huh? They're, they're not just seeing this as a tactic. They're actually, they're actually living their witness. I think the Brethren Church is so—it's um, such a model for those things, certainly around conscientious objection and and peace standards um, and stances. I think you know the Brethren know how to do this pretty well, but I think it's the way that we engage advocacy that we um that people don't just quickly disregard us
3: mm-hmm. yeah i'm i'm really glad that you brought up uh the brethren church because that's actually where i wanted to conclude our interview um like you said or like we've said you're part of the catholic mobilizing network but you um do have a connection with the church of the brethren um in that you uh were once a participant in brother volunteer service right
2: that's right yeah in 1994 i was part of dbs um, living and working with migrant farm workers on the west coast in Oregon.
3: And could you talk a little bit more about um, what you did that year?
2: Certainly. Um, well, I was the 1st BVSer to to be on staff or, you know, as a full-time volunteer with Pineros y Campesinos Unidos del Noreste, which is the Northwest Tree Planters and Farm Workers United. Um, it's much like the um, United Farm Workers in California, but but in Oregon and so we were mostly working with Mexicans uh Mexican migrants who would come up across the border and who would or who had been living in the states for a long time picking strawberries working in the um in the nurseries flower and tree nurseries working with the hops for beer working with you know, vegetables that were packaged and, and canned in the local area of the Willamette Valley. So I worked for a service center for a union, and we helped to pursue immigration papers, and we helped with uh, worker rights abuses and documentation, um, translation, etc. within the service center for the union.
3: So we recently did an episode uh, with Dan McFadden, who runs uh, BVS. Yeah. And so I know that we have a lot of in- uh, listeners who are really interested in potentially joining BVS. Um, could you talk a little bit about why you joined BVS and maybe why um, someone who's considering it uh, should take that leap of faith and get involved?
2: Sure. <clears throat> I not only did one year, but I, two, I did two years. I actually followed up for my first year in Oregon. It was so transformative for me that I signed up for a second year of BVS where I lived and worked in Washington, D.C., and that's how I ended up here and stayed here um, in the city. So um, my second year, I worked with the Latin America Working Group in doing human rights um, on on Central America and and the region of Latin America. Uh, And really, what was so powerful and what I would uh, encourage others to get involved with is you want an experience that is kind of breaks you out of any comfort zone, and um, that just offers an opportunity to see a different part of the world or a different way of thinking. In my case, I was a Catholic kid right out of college, didn't know any Anabaptists, and joined BBS because it seemed like on paper it was a great organization, I talked to folks, people seemed really nice and warm and inviting, and um, and then the project that I was interested in, or the projects, I guess there were a couple, but particularly this one. Um, for both these working and living with migrant farm workers, um, it was I was it was attractive for me, and so it gave me an opportunity to meet a ton of brethren, young people like myself, and become friends and and just to see the world through an Anabaptist tradition. But it started off for me a trajectory of really valuing the peace witness the nonviolent witness that I learned from my brethren friends, certainly the anti war approach, conscientious objection, those were new concepts for me. Um and then also just valuing ecumenism, you know, starting to see, wow, if I'm a Catholic and here's my Christian brother and sisters that are brethren, well who else is out there living and learning and and witnessing to a gospel that we very much call the same, but we Emphasize different things and so what are the charisms? What are the beauties of the Brethren tradition that I can learn as a Catholic? Hopefully I left with some of my brethren friends some of the goodness of the Catholic Church, but other traditions that are out there um, within, the, within the Christian faith um, that are just emphasizing different aspects of the gospel and and a living witness so I think if you want that kind of openness both from a theological standpoint and then from a um a service and uh diversity and um you know in inju- injustice seeing injustice and getting involved in some way kind of really having an intensive lived experience those for me for sure helped to, to chart out my path to work on injustice for the rest of my career you know i've now been in Washington, over 20 years, and, and about 25 years into my career, so it's definitely always stayed on on course.
3: All right. Well, Chrisanne, thank you once again so much for uh, joining with us and, and speaking both to your work and, and to how um, that that time at BBS has, has shaped what you've been doing for for years on end. Um, if you could just give your our listeners one last plug for um, how you can how they could get involved with the work that you are doing or how they can learn more?
2: Absolutely. Well, I would just invite folks to, despite the fact that it's, it's, it's called Catholics Um, the organization Catholic mobilizing network, you can visit our website and it's really not exclusively for Catholics. I mean, the Catholic church is huge. And so we do a lot of work within our own tradition, but what we're focused on in terms of ending the death penalty and promoting more of a, a restorative justice is something that, um, it should be very appealing for people of all faith. So I would say visit the website, Catholic Mobilizing Network, and then take the national pledge to end the death penalty. It's a way that you can join your voice with others in making a commitment to educate, advocate, and pray for an end to the death penalty. And if you sign the pledge, you just get oriented with a whole bunch of sort of Advocacy and educational tools um, to really get you up to speed and and get you involved in the abolition movement to end the death penalty here once and for all.
0: At the beginning of the podcast, um, I asked you a question to kind of think about as you uh listen to this interview and that was as a as a christian as an anabaptist uh what do you think about our criminal justice system and i'm sure that answer varies between all our listeners as it's such a broad system and uh big subject but christian pointed out something that i feel resonates very much with our community that both liberals and conservatives of faith are against the death penalty We have, as Anabaptists, as brethren, we have both liberals and conservatives in our midst. But we believe in the power of forgiveness. I had the pleasure of attending the Regional Youth Conference out in McPherson, Kansas, the other week. And um, the theme was forgiveness. And Sean Flory Replogle did a phenomenal job of leading the youth and uh, the young adults who were there through thinking about forgiveness and what it means to actually forgive one another. The scripture they chose for the weekend, I think, is really fitting to our conversation today. It's Ephesians four thirty-one to 32. And it reads, Get rid of all bitterness, passion, and anger. No more shouting or insults. No more hateful feelings of any sort. Instead, be kind and tenderhearted to one another and forgive one another, as God has forgiven you through Christ. There's an absurd amount of violence in our society today, and it's obvious that adding more death, more violence into that circle isn't going to solve anything. So as Christians, how do we advocate that? How do we advocate for change in our political scene? These are questions that we've got to ask ourselves, like Chrisanne was saying. uh, Do we kind of take a more pretentious stance and just like immediately, you know, be just super vocal and press our beliefs every chance we get? Do we support people who are in the fold of things like already on the, on the front lines of movements? Where do you participate in advocating for change for abolishing the death penalty? Uh, for working towards reconciliation with people who, who've committed heinous acts, violent acts. I can suggest a good first place to start, going to catholicsmobilizing.org to take the pledge to end the death penalty and uh, to gain more resources on how you can advocate for ending the death penalty. I pray that you find some peace today in my favorite quote from Martin Luther King Jr., The ultimate weakness of violence is that it is a descending spiral, begetting the very thing it seeks to destroy. Instead of diminishing evil, it multiplies it. Through violence, you may murder the liar, but you cannot murder the lie, nor establish the truth. Through violence, you may murder the hater, but you do not murder hate. In fact, violence merely increases hate. So it goes. Returning violence for violence multiplies violence, adding deeper darkness to a night already devoid of stars. Darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Just as hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. The Dunker Punks podcast is produced by a team of people from across the country trying to practice true forgiveness. These people also want to hear your thoughts on today's podcast. So tweet us at DunkerPunksPod. Hit us up on Facebook at DunkerPunksPod or on Snapchat at DunkerPunksPod and follow us to get updates on what's going on in our world. If you want to participate as a contributor like Emmett did today, email us at dpp at org. We're always looking for new people who have something to say. If you want to support us via sponsorship, email us or hit us up on social media as well we'll get back to you quick big thanks today again to Emmett Witkowski-Eldred for providing a quality interview with Chrisanne Valancourt-Murphy thanks to Suzanne Lay who is our executive producer I had a couple different hats I was the editor did the music and I hosted today Dunker Punks peace out